Now, yeah. is, is it one mass, two mass, three mass? You know, that's the big question now. Welcome back to the Interview Podcast on the Wyoming Milbank Podcast Network from Milbank, South Dakota. I'm Craig Weinberg. And we have a special guest. For me, just because over the last several years I've gotten to know uh, this guy pretty well. Uh, we work together outside of work. Uh, and I think we have some interests that are similar regarding two wheels. Um, yes. And uh, just uh, it's more than just passing interest. <laughs> And I, I think um, he brings a, an interesting perspective to the, the conversation. So, Bob Pudwill, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here, Craig. Uh, this is a, We've talked about this for quite some time, doing an interview. Um, but it just didn't work out. And today, it just fell into our laps. Yeah, it fell. <laughs> it I didn't slip right on in. the snow coming in here. <laughs> I just walked right through the door. But I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> Uh, Bob, we met, oh, brother, five, four, four years four ago? Four years ago, yeah. Uh, you ago. were the, uh, the outcast, outsider, <laughs> from, in, <laughs> yeah. ba- back in from Texas. Um, you moved, you were near Houston, yeah? Yes, um, yeah, near Houston. Why were you down there? And secondly, more importantly, why in the world did you come back to South Dakota? <laughs> oh, that's a question I get all the time. It's really interesting because most people think of retirement as a place you head to Arizona. Warm. Yeah, head south of where I was already living, and uh, that's not the case. Um, I it, it's it was been a dream. Uh, we've uh, my wife and I, Wendy. Uh, Wendy is my wife, and uh, we've been married for fifty years now. So holy cow! Yeah, it's a it's a fur piece from where we started, and. Uh, <laughs> uh, Interestingly, our dream was always to get back to the Dakotas during retirement years. Uh, we're not much for all the heat down south, but my work in, in the oil and gas industry uh, was headquartered there, so that's where I ended up at. And we always missed the snow, the regular snow, and and uh, my wife's been accused of praying for snow on a regular basis in the wintertime. So <laughs> so uh, if it starts snowing, the neighbors are calling saying, why are stop you praying? For- stop, stop, stop that four-letter word. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we, uh, we've, we hunted around and hunted around. We looked in places in North Dakota, uh, in various areas in South Dakota, and just it just worked out so well. We ended up coming to this little town that neither one had ever, of us had ever thought about, Millbank, South Dakota. And why Millbank? Well, it's just a great place to retire to and to mm-hmm. be from. And uh, the people here are generous and open and uh, welcoming. Uh, we've just uh, loved being here. So that's that's how we ended up in Millbank. There was a set of circumstances through my uh, sister-in-law and she was acquainted with a realtor and we were looking for acreages and she says well I happen to know this guy that happens to know this other guy over in Millbank <laughs> and next thing you know we're looking at a 14 acre parcel of property that my wife and I fell in love with immediately and uh, we just uh, we just went at it with uh, both wheels gusto turning. gusto that's right yes gusto <laughs> So you uh, you retired from the oil and gas industry. What was your job? 
that that you ended on? Yeah. So uh, where um, it took me was uh, not so much on the working on the oil rigs themselves, but in support service industries that uh, actually supplied products and services to the oil rigs and to the major oil companies. And so uh, the last job I had was in in that business. We'd actually started our own uh, equipment supply company. So I was a CEO of a small company. We had about $15 million annual sales and about 25 employees working for us. And uh, we had five service centers, including places in Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, and parts of Texas. And you did you oversee the entire, all those locations? Yes, yes. Yeah, I was, uh, there were several of us that had joined together in mm-hmm. partnership on the business. And um, it got to the point in... Uh, late 2015, where we were seeing another, commonly, another downturn in our industry. Uh, Basically, uh, a lot of companies were really cutting back staff. And I was close enough to retirement. I just said, you know, I think it's important for our young guys. We had a large staff that was under 35 years of age and just felt like um, I was, I was, ready to Mm -hmm. retire and let these guys take over and see what they can do with it. And uh, the company continues today and still provides products and services that, that we were doing then and is doing, doing fairly well. So it was a good move on my part and I was ready for the retirement time. So you were, uh, originally you were, you were born in Yankton, Mm -hmm. Yankton, Yankton, South, South South Dakota. Yes. Um, and then you ended up in Ipswich? Yeah, so uh, through circumstances. Which is another uh, yeah. middle of nowhere. <laughs> Literally, I think that one is. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it was actually my, my dad was a pastor, and he ended up uh, taking a, a pastoral assignment at a country church. It was uh, about 25 miles south and west of Aberdeen, South Dakota. And so we were there for nearly nine years, uh, of which through those years, I managed to uh, get through my high school years at Crestbart, South Dakota. It doesn't even have a high school or a school there at all anymore. And uh, so it was a really, really great experience growing up in rural South Dakota. Uh, Chance to work for farmers as I was going through my high school years, participating in a small school athletics and music and fine arts and those kinds of things, which is just an incredible experience. Um, Rural South Dakota uh, may not have these big schools and big programs, but they sure got some great people. And, and uh, it was fun a couple years ago uh, to attend my uh, 50th class reunion, believe it or not, there's still a few of us left. And uh, just to see, um, the interesting paths mm-hmm. that members of my class took, uh, leaders in industry and in education and in uh, medical fields and in ag-related uh, opportunities. So it was just fun to see how all of us uh, were able to maximize our skills and talents and and uh, uh, create a respectable 
uh, life pattern and uh, opportunity for our children. So it was a, that was really fun to see that. Amazing what you learn in a small country school of 130 <laughs> kids <laughs> in high school. That was all right. four grades. That wasn't just one <laughs> class. How um, how did you get into the motorcycling world? Oh, another very interesting because aspect you, of my life. Uh, yeah. Are you currently, um, what's your role in the Christian Motorcycle Association currently? Yeah, so, yeah, so interestingly, I was racing back when I was a kid. Well, a kid, I was my early 20s and um, keep in mind that was a long time ago it was a very long time ago it was well before <laughs> the current uh, high-tech kind of racing machines that they right. have now doing motocross but um how i got involved was um one of one of the friends that i'd raced with he and his boys raced and and we ended up going to uh uh, different events together but he managed to go to the sturgis motorcycle rally back in the mid 70s when uh the sturgis uh black hills motorcycle rally was relatively small maybe seven to ten thousand oh, attendees man. is all that's I like mean, the standing on a corner nowadays exactly there. <laughs> right so he went there and he met this gentleman by the name of herb shreve who is there with his son out of uh hatfield arkansas of all places hatfield arkansas i mean this is rural arkansas <laughs> there's no doubt about it it's it's a, a beautiful uh geographic area um just borders close to oklahoma and the wachita's and anyway he was out there he just felt like he really wanted to as a christian to minister into the motorcycling community and this friend of mine came back and he says, man, you got to check this out. You got to check this out. This is Herb Shreve and this is a Christian motorcycle association, motorcyclist association. And not many people ever thought of motorcycling and Christian. Well, that, most of that's due to PR, good or well, bad, typically, that involved uh, the Hells Angels. Yes, yes. And so that, it, it totally tainted the concept of motorcycling against any kind of, of Christian thought because it's only the evil, like horrible people that ride motorcycles. Yeah. You, you know, you, you remember the old Honda ads, you meet the nicest people on a Honda? <laughs> yeah. Well, that wasn't said about you meet the nicest no. people on a Harley no. Davidson. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> but there, it was, I, I think you're exactly right, Craig. There was really this distinctive about motorcycling that it was bad is full of bad people mm -hmm. and i think herb saw that and just felt the challenge to go and and really there was an the opportunity there to do ministry christian ministry amongst the motorcycling or world um, uh, and, and not to sugarcoat some of the horrible things that were done in the name like uh, the hell's angels i mean they're terrible people died i mean there's all kinds of of miserable uh actions done by some of these groups without yeah. doubt yeah and it, i think it's it's a it's the challenge there is there's still people mm -hmm. and they still have a need for a deeply spiritual experience and herb saw that and and as as difficult of a challenge it was the first few years for herb were really uh quite challenging because uh he, he was essentially thrown out of a lot of uh bike rallies and that sort of thing you don't belong here but over the years, because he, gained, he was a Christian. 
because he was a Christian and because they, there was this feeling that he was going to come in and do the typical Mm -hmm. pound the Bible and, you know, preach hellfire and and brimstone on him. And he didn't do that. His perspective was, I'm going to come in, I'm going to love on people, you know, regardless of where they're at and I'm going to do service for them. So his main objective was to come in and just uh, share the love of Jesus through this opportunity to do ministry. If it was picking up garbage after a, a concert night or, you know, asking if he could just sh- share a testimony from the platform of the, the stage. And uh, that continues even today. So at that point in time, I, I signed the piece of paper. It was a pretty simple process, you know, statement of faith and, and would you, you know, with no money involved, I just sent in this application. And pretty soon I got this little paper piece, piece of paper card that said, uh, here you are, Bob Pudwell. You're now a member of the Christian Motorcyclist Association, number 1618. <laughs> so I was the 1,618th person wow. to join the Christian Motorcyclist Association. And uh have to understand at that time there were no chapters. There were nothing, mm-hmm. no groups organized. Uh, to which today I think uh, membership numbers are well over 200,000. We have probably 25 to 30,000 active members in the United States alone. Wow. And uh, CMA is in uh, probably 90% of the countries of the world Hmm. um, doing ministry. And what's really um, exciting is our mission has not changed, nor has our focus or our vision or our purpose. And uh, we still uh, adhere to, you know, reaching the world one heart at a time. Mm. Uh, Our purpose is, you know, just go in and be friends to people, be a servant to them. Um, A lot of the the organizations now, whether it's rallies or whether it's motorcycle racing events or whatever, we just go in to serve. You know, is there something that we can do to help you out? Can we can we help uh, park vehicles? Can we pick up trash? Can we, you know, we just offer to do all kinds of things. And so it's, the, the ministry has really expanded a lot. We are one of the primary uh, service points, if you will, at the Loretta Lynn uh, Nationals that are held every year uh, for all the young kids that are learning how to motocross and that are in the motocrossing world. In the cycling uh, world, we are constantly called upon to to help out with different events. Uh, they call us now. We don't even have to contact them. They'll usually call us and they just expect us to be there, wow. which can be a strain if you're living down <laughs> right. south in Texas where every weekend <laughs> there's an event somewhere. There is a big event somewhere, <laughs> you know, so hmm. um, that's been really, really interesting. We had a lot of fun. We have a, a small uh, chapter here based out of uh, Ortonville. Uh, it's called No Borders for Christ, and everybody who's listening to this is welcome to join us. We meet on the on the uh, third two tu- second Tuesday of every uh, month, either at uh, Pizza Ranch here in Millbank or at uh, Berkner's Pizza in Ortonville. Hmm. So that's uh, just a, mostly just to get together to fellowship and share motorcycling stories and and prepare for any events that may be coming up. So that's a lot of fun. 
So the the now now you can say, well, what kind of motorcycle do you ride? Well, see, you kind of uh, <coughs> you straddle. I mean, in in multiple senses, <laughs> um, the the genres. Yes. You currently own a big, humongous old Harley. Yes, old, I do. But newish, um, as well as uh, what I would call a rice burner crush rocket. Yep. Um, I do. And a dual sport. And a dual sport. So you plus you have a roller skate car. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the little smart car yeah. that's got a three cylinder motor in it, a thousand cc's. Which and, cracks uh, me up because you also drive a humongous Ford, <laughs> and you drag big things. Yeah, I and drag you have big a little. I mean, th- that car fits in the hood of the truck. Just about. <laughs> it's really, really close. We we actually bought this uh, toy I mean, it's like hauler just camper. Slamming two motorcycles together, <laughs> put a roof on it, you're good. Yeah, it's really close, and it's got a it's a cabriolet, so Ooh. so we can actually fold the top down if we drive it into our toy hauler. We can drive it in there, and crawl out the roof, if you will, <laughs> <laughs> to get out of it in case the doors don't work. Fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, so so you, I mean, you you ride multiple types of motorcycles yeah. was that difficult i know back i mean i started riding in 2003 i believe no it was 2001 um and it was kind of a big deal mm-hmm. like the 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 groups you could ride within like if you right. had if you were a sport bike rider you couldn't ride with the harleys That's or, right. or or the cruiser style and typically that was harley if you had a honda cruiser yeah you were still you could hang out with the rice burners but you weren't a real motorcyclist um, has that changed at all? That idea that unless you have a Harley, you're not a real motorcyclist. I I think it's gotten, um, you know, it's interesting because uh, on my uh, Facebook account, I I uh, am following uh, various motorcycling groups out of New Mexico. The, the most interesting one is uh, uh, a, a group out of South Africa. The reason I started following them is because our international president is based in South Africa, Jayberg, and it's uh, it's really interesting. Um, I would say interesting in a sense that if you ride in South Africa, you don't ride anything but a high-speed um, sport bike, sport-type, yeah, sport-type <laughs> yeah. bike. You know those guys are so used to riding at 180 mile or 180 wow. kilometers, kilometers yeah. per hour speed, and is that about know, that, 100? Uh, it's about a 110, 120 okay. somewhere in there, but that's that's a low speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes they're above 200. <laughs> uh, it's just crazy how they ride. In the United States, I think they're still, um. There's still a bit of segregation. It's interesting because um, with with motorcycling, uh-huh. you know, I think I can say that without getting <laughs> myself in too much trouble. But if you if you like sport bike riding, it's because it's so different mm-hmm. than riding on a cruiser, you know, or a big touring bike. Yeah, you um, don't normally jump on a sport bike to go straight. No, and to go like jo- like just cruising. That's just yeah. not what you do. Yeah. Yeah. You want it's the reason I don't own a bike out anymore, because I live in the flatland with straight roads, and that is not fun to me. <laughs> I learned to ride 
yeah. and twisty roads in the mountains in Oregon. Oh yeah, you get spoiled. With oh that. man, yeah. e- even tour, you know, cruisers. Well, the cruisers are killer on that too. They yeah. they love those yeah. uh, twisty turns, but a little bit more gentle. The the sport bike rider, whether it's there, there's variations on the sport bike, mm-hmm. but um, uh, probably the most fun bike and recreational for me is uh, is my dual sport. Mm. You know, where I can go out, I can ride a back road. You know, the so the no maintenance up. sign doesn't mean anything to you anymore. Oh no, that's oh <laughs> no maintenance. Let's go. <laughs> right. So th- that that's a new phenomenon for me moving out to the Midwest. Yeah. From the West Coast, is this idea that you? I mean, you can be on a map, and the map says, "Yep, keep going straight another two miles." You can't keep going, <laughs> especially in the winter. You all of a sudden come to white. Yeah. But there's a road there. Yeah. It's it's plotted. There's yeah. a road. That's right. Well, that's where dual sport comes in. And dual sports are really fun because um, if you get the right kind of setup on your bike, whether it's, uh, you know, the suspension or the tires, you can go out and just really do some fun stuff in riding through creeks and you're riding through woods and you're riding through over rock uh, uh, rocky places. And then if you decide you want to get there, most of the current uh, dual sport bikes uh, allow you to to get there quickly because mm-hmm. um, I'll ride highway speeds with with my dual sport and it's only thirty nine horsepower motorcycle but I can ride at highway speeds I get to where I want to go I've got my tires set up so that I can ride over dirt or in sand or in you know a trash. little bit of mud a little bit of, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah go actually, crazy but. Well, we we did a ride down in Texas with it, and and a lot of it was real rocky creek bottom mm-hmm. ground, and so uh, that was out in the hill country. Uh, that's a beautiful place to ride uh, if you ever get to Texas and you're riding, whether you're cruiser cruiser style, a touring style, or whether you're off road or sport bike. It, it's just it's phenomenal. It's good for everybody out there, but the the dual sports are nice because you can get off road and ride this little trail down through some creek bottoms and through some trees and over some rocky ground and it's a lot of fun, no doubt about it. <laughs> so jumping you down the controversial hole for a second, yeah. Helmets, helmets, mandated or not? Well, um, I will tell you that I ride ninety nine point nine percent of the time with a helmet on, and that's. That's for my self-protection. If I think it's, um, it is controversial because in one respect, um, you want people to be safe. On the other hand, if, if we mandate everything to try to keep people safe, I think we take away some of the fun of the risk of, if you want to kill yourself, go kill yourself, right? I mean, because at the end of the day, it's it really is our decision whether we want to ride safely or mm-hmm. not. So um, my encouragement to others is ride with a helmet. Um, relative to the sport of motorcycling, I, you know, the times that I have ridden without a helmet, there is nothing like it. I mean, when you're out there riding and the winds, and the big go, bug smacks you right well, in the I don't cheek. Have, I don't have much. Yeah, I don't have much hair, but the wind blowing yeah. through your hair, you know, you're out there able to really experience nature. And I think that's the thing that people 
really enjoy about riding without a motorcycle. However, I can tell you that I think safety uh, for me is important. I think you have to consider all the things. Are you are you a good enough rider to manage in any kind of situation so that you would not have to wear a helmet? I don't think any of us are because there's so many unexpected things. But I think for things like that to be mandated when it is your personal decision, there's a difference between, you know, people sometimes compare it to, um, you know, making sure that the, the child safety seat is in the car, that the child has to be in a safety seat. Well, a lot of people compare it to a seatbelt. Oh, we, we mandate, you know, we, it's illegal to drive a car without a seatbelt, so it should be illegal to ride a motorcycle without a helmet. Yeah, is, is that a fair comparison? I, I think I think it is. Um, I guess then that goes down the road. Should seatbelts be mandated by law? Well, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but I mean, so, so then by I mean just default, yeah. helmet should be as well. Now well, here in I, South Dakota, that's never going to happen. Wisconsin, that's never going to happen. Yeah. So I think I think there is a bit of a difference there because um, in a car with a seatbelt, you've got people of various ages and and capabilities and i think the protection there is well worth it i i understand the the freedom thing and uh, i can <laughs> i can remember as a kid growing up in in south dakota that's probably why they mandated the speed safety belt <laughs> law because there'd be five of us kids in the back seat of my dad's sedan going down the road and it was like seat belts what's a seat belt <laughs> you know oh you can't put that kid behind the steering wheel and drive down the road <laughs> you know uh, he's he's two years old mm-hmm. and he's sitting on dad's lap driving down the road or what are those kids doing in the back of that pickup you know um totally different circumstances today and i think uh it it probably makes sense because not everybody is as responsible as they should be behind the wheel of a car should motorcycling if you, if you don't know how to ride a motorcycle you oh that doesn't stop anyone really i've seen I, i've seen it <laughs> oh man it's amazing how many people jump on there ah it's fine i know how to ride a bicycle and they'll run, yeah, run out there that's true problem is it's not the same no. i mean there are some some things but it's so minor the amount of things that are the same yeah. I mean, two wheels might be the end of it. Oh, there's handlebars and a seat. There you <laughs> yeah. go. That's it. Uh, it probably there may be is. a chain. Well, I mean, because you certainly don't get to the same speeds on a bicycle. Yeah. In order right. to, to require yeah. counter steering and all kinds, you know, all, just to, just to turn around nuances. a corner. How do you swerve a motorcycle? Not yeah. the same way you swerve a bicycle at speeds. Yeah. yeah. If you're going 60 miles an hour, how do you get out of the way of a truck? Yeah. If you don't know how to do that, it's not instinctive. No, it's not. Uh, motorcycle riding it's is backward. a completely d- yeah. different skill yeah. set. Yeah. And so should there be, you know, with the helmet thing, uh, if you require a helmet, should you then require full armored gear? You know, because then, then I think it gets difficult because where do you stop? If you begin, where do you stop? Yeah, I think the, the, the freedom of decision making on that is... I, I respect it. I understand it. I'm I'm going to make a choice that is best for me and my safety. And I appreciate that fact, that I can make my mm-hmm. decision. I don't have to have somebody standing over me saying, well, you didn't put on your your uh, 
gear that's rated for a, 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 right. a crash <laughs> yeah. at 70 miles an hour and you're skidding down the road and you have to have this certain size arm pad and this size shoulder pad and, and it has to be this kind of a helmet. And then all that comes into play and it's like, you know what? I'm smart enough to make my own decisions on this stuff and I'm going to do what's right. So if if people want to make the choice, it's probably not the best choice for them. It's I think there should be that freedom to make a bad choice because life is not full of certainties. So if so. you, if I mean, like in, in the state of South Dakota, there's no law. Now, if you're under a certain age, there is. Yes. But once you get over, I think, is it 21? I um, believe I, it's 21. I yes. think then you can make that decision to not wear something. Um. Heck, you can ride around in shorts and flip-flops if you want to. Oh, uh, no, brother. That, every time I see that, <laughs> I, I just I cringe because, right. you know, it doesn't take much of a fall in a parking Ooh. lot to end up in the hospital with a road rash that takes months to heal. Why would you want to do that? Mm -hmm. And then you see, we had a situation. We were at a big rally in Texas. Now, it was a Lone Star rally in Galveston. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, they, they don't have a mandatory helmet law down there, and they don't have a mandatory clothing attire or anything like that. And <laughs> Riding or walking. Or, yeah, <laughs> whatever. You right. know. I've been there. Right? <laughs> yeah, you were there. That's right. That's right. So the, the sad thing was, is, as my wife was, was helping um, chaplains at the hospital, mm. and uh, a situation happened where, a husband and wife were riding down one of the roads, and he decided he was going to show off a little bit to his buddies. Uh, pulled up the front end to do a wheelie, dumped her oh. off the back, and she broke her back in the process. Oh, man. So now here you've got a mom and a mother and a wife, you know, a sister, an aunt, um, who's laying in a hospital bed because of a foolish activity mm -hmm. on the part of her husband and who knows how long and they were they were 500 miles from home so oh. it's not like they were just in the local area um you know it's it's really a tragedy when you see that kind of thing take place and it's not just at the lone star rally in galveston texas it's not just at the sturgis bike rally in sturgis south dakota it's it's Everyday events, mm -hmm. you know, where people get on on a, a motorcycle, decide to take somebody with them and take them with them in many different ways. But but I think it's, um, you know, I just encourage people to think about their families, think about their safety. Anything can happen. We had just, uh, just, a, uh, just a real tragedy in, in Millbank area here and just a wonderful family and you know and you never know what's going to happen mm -hmm. when you have a deer come flying out of the ditch and um very little time for reaction and that can that tragedy could strike any one of us yeah. and and all i'm saying in that is could you know can i minimize uh, my uh, health exposure or good, you know, exposure to situations that happen unexpectedly. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not for mandating helmets. I'm not for mandating, you know, your boots have got to cover, you know, past your, your um, 
calf and you got to have knee pads and shoulder pads and elbow pads on your gear and full face helmets. That's um, kind of takes away, you know, in some ways the, the responsibility of the rider. Why do we have to depend on, for that matter, the state, mm. if you will, on everything that mm-hmm. we do? Do we have to have everything mandated to so that we, we don't have to watch out for ourselves? Does that make us invincible well and the other thought of that the other side of it is if you if you do mandate all these things where's the liability lay yeah it, does it, it lie it, with it, the state right because they they, they <laughs> mandated i followed all the rules so now they're responsible for right. an action that you know impacted me yeah and if, the other way around too if they don't mandate it is it fully on me mm-hmm. if, if i choose and i think so and one of the arguments i've heard is um you know you go and get emergency services if you choose to not wear proper protective gear um and someone's paying for that and presumably you will your insurance will um, but if you don't have that then the state ends up picking it up so mm-hmm. you should have been mandated to be do everything you could to protect yourself because there is that chance that the state's going to have to pay the bill and so because of that and i i almost see that side of it mm. and so i almost wish there was a way that you could say I hold them harmless, you know, we'll figure it out. It changes the responsibility big time. Sure does. And and if you had to look at that piece of paper when you bought that motorcycle that said, if I choose to do this, I am accepting all risk and I, I'm writing a, my name to the fact that I will not um, hold anyone else. No one else will have to be responsible for what happens to me on this thing. And I don't know how you even police that. I mean, yeah. it, it's it sounds like that's the way you'd go, but I don't know how you do that in a in a civil society. Yeah, and so how how do you handle that when you're following all the rules? You go down the road and you get t-boned by somebody coming off a side road right. who didn't see you. You know, was it was it your responsibility because you didn't move side to side a bit so that you made sure you didn't check their eyes to make sure that they were watching you as they were coming out on that side road. Um, now, legally, it's probably not. However, I think personally, that is my my, my fault. Be, be, because if I'm the rider and I'm going down the road and someone pulls out in front of me and I get blindsided, um, that because I lose no matter whose fault it is, I, I think I have to be willing to say, I better anticipate something's coming around that corner mm-hmm. every time. Because mm-hmm. if I don't and something comes around the corner and they're in my lane, that's neat. They're wrong. I lose Yeah, every time because I don't have that big fat steel roll cage around me. Yeah. And, and you know, there's been many times, uh, even when Wendy and I were younger and riding together on a lot of roads, um, it's it's amazing to me, and I don't think it's purposeful. In some cases, it probably is, but um, how you're riding down the road and uh, you're on a two-lane road, traffic in opposite directions, and you're going along and you see this car following a big semi-truck, and you see him kind of poking its nose <laughs> out there into mm-hmm. your lane going down the road. It should be your first indicator that there's Something's this guy up. is mm-hmm. antsy. He's trying to get around this truck. And be totally aware of what's going on. And we had a situation where that happened to us on a mm. on a trip. We were we were riding, and the next thing we know, this guy about a hundred feet, uh, 
before meeting us, decides he's going to pull out around this truck. Oh, that's no time. That's no Holy time. Holy cow. We, you know, my immediate decision was, because I'm always thinking about that, and I had been watching this guy do this thing, so mm-hmm. I was prepared in my head uh, for that situation. We immediately took the ditch. Mm. Um, I mean, we had stuff scattered all over the place. <laughs> we didn't get hurt. I was able to, you know, we the bike laid down, obviously, but at least we got through it. We weren't hurt, and... And it was kind of, we were shaken, for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, but we got back on, packed all our stuff back on the bike. Because oh, <laughs> we were on a trip, right? It was, I mean, we uh, were on a, on a touring trip. And uh, you just grab stuff and it, you, it's like, oh, thank you, God. I'm still, still here to talk <laughs> right. about this. And how often that has happened yeah. over the years has just been amazing to me. Mm-hmm. And even what's, what's really... Um, you know, I, I like to talk about group riding. You know, one of the things about group riding is that you have to be even more aware of your circumstances around you. You're riding with people who have uh, all levels of riding ability. And so you're going down the road and the guy you're riding next to may have only gotten his new bike for and been on it for two months. Mm-hmm. And it's a bike he's ridden for quite a while, but it's brand new to him. Then you've got the guy that's first time out. He's been riding for six months, but has never really ridden in a group. And uh, so you've got all those variables, and you really have to think about that because all of a sudden you'll have a vehicle Maybe it's another motorcyclist mm-hmm. who wants to get around your big group of right. 12, 15 motorcycles, and I'm not going to – these guys are cruising along. They're enjoying the day. They're riding at 55, 60 miles an hour, and I want to grind. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm determined I'm going to get around. Well, he takes off, decides he's going to fly around you. Well, all of a sudden, here comes a car over the top of the hill. He quickly tries to maneuver into, those, into the group. Into the group. Mm-hmm. And and now everybody's having to adjust really quickly. And you've really got to be careful with those guys that could be shaken that mm-hmm. are brand new to riding. And so um, uh, it just becomes, uh, it almost becomes work riding in a, in a Oh, group. yeah, totally. Because you have to think about everything else yes. as well. Yeah, and so we always make sure, like when we're doing a group ride, that uh, pretty clear instructions. So before you even leave, you guys have a powwow. Yeah, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, these are our hand signals that we're using. Um, Just be careful out there. You know, we don't know what we're going to encounter on road conditions or whatever. And so, just spend a little bit of time Mm -hmm. doing a safety powwow ahead of the ride. Um, Helps. Well, it could absolutely save lives. Yeah, I mean, it, it does. I mean, there's no doubt yeah. about it. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I, I really appreciate about the chapter aspect of of the Christian Motorcyclists Association. We would we would actually spend time on that. And yearly we would do uh, training for our road captains so that they had a, a better idea of how to handle these kinds of situations. Mm-hmm. And usually the road captain was an experienced rider who knew how to give instructions and mm-hmm what to do, who's going to be the lead bike, who's going to be the, you know, the, the tag bike and, and things that could happen down the road, you know, and we would never, we might have 20 riders in a big group, but we would always try to separate it out. So there's more than, no more than, uh, five to six bikes in a portion of that in a group. And so you'd have five or six bikes and then you'd have a gap of a quarter mile 
and then five or six bikes, and then mm-hmm. a gap, and then five. Because this bikes. wasn't a parade. No. <laughs> yeah. So, so you no. wanted yeah, so, to keep that. Yeah. So for, we're gonna go out for yeah. ice cream. We want everybody to get there. Mm-hmm. Right. Half pound ice cream for a dollar. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I love that story. We're, we're heading to Norwalk, Ohio, everybody. <laughs> go back and listen to our Bill Bader Jr. interview there you uh, go. on this show. It's fantastic. And uh, yeah. if you're ever out to the uh, Summit uh, Motorsports Park uh, drag strip out there, um, apparently a pound of ice cream for a dollar. Oh, I'm, I'm going. I know. Sign me up. I know. I'm Sign in. me I, up. We, we want to take the family yeah. out there. Check it out. It'd be a blast. <laughs> Yeah, some oh, good anyway. riding roads out <laughs> oh, there, <yeah>. too. <laughs> Northern Ohio. Do they let me in on a motorcycle? Ooh, I don't know. If you're drag yeah. racing, they might. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, oh, yeah. be great stuff. So, yeah. Um, so, you've been in a part of that for a long time, clearly. 1978. Um, what is your role? Oh, man, that's older than me. What is your <laughs> Older than dirt. <laughs> what, what is your, like, do you have a, a, a role there? Yes. Um, are you just we, a chapter pres, or are you bigger well, than that at this point? No, no, I... Uh, I, at, when we were in Texas, I was um, one of the lead area reps for mm. South Texas. Um, great experience. Um, it was really, really fun. Had some great people to work with. And and as a area rep, we had four to five chapters each that we were responsible for. Uh, lead area rep, I was one of two um, and that we had kind of split the state up into two different. So we each mm-hmm. had, I don't know. 12 chapters something like that and and two couple area reps that uh uh we worked with and then the state coordinator here uh very deliberately um i've chosen just to just to work in the local chapter love doing that we just got some great people in our local chapter so i've served as a chapter president for the last two years three years two years well whatever it is Um, some years yeah some years (laughs) and uh so it each chapter has a president, vice president, uh, secretary, treasurer, a road captain, and a chaplain. Mm. So, yeah, it's a, it's it's been fun. We we've, we've enjoyed that. So, uh, going back to oil and gas a little bit, oh, <clears throat> you've been in that world for gas. a long time. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on what's happening currently? This is uh, January twenty eighth, two thousand twenty one, when we record this, um, and there's there's coming down a lot of of directive changes mm-hmm. from the uh, administration, from mm-hmm. the uh, presidential branch, executive branch of the country, um, right? Regarding uh, fossil fuels, natural gas sure. pipelines, sure, uh, wind, solar. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your take on all this? Oh, that's a really interesting uh, question. Uh, there's just I, I I I was disappointed to see this kind of a knee jerk reaction to the XL pipeline to the Dakota Access pipeline. Uh, these are very very safe, extremely safe, extremely well thought out. A lot of engineering, a lot of safety protocols. Uh, to get the carbon fuels that we need into our country and throughout our country. Uh, Let's face it, uh, fossil fuels are not going away. Um, I think that uh, uh, it it was an effort to improve our our standing on 
on quote unquote the climate change agenda. Um, it's disappointing when you think about the fact that uh, our contribution to the CO2 emissions have been dramatically reduced because of uh, natural gas, which has a very low carbon footprint. And so when you see these kinds of things happening that I feel are not very well thought through, um, and you see 11,000 people immediately, immediately impacted. I, I know these kind of jobs, and they are. They're, they're good jobs. They're six-figure jobs. They provide well for their families. And to all of a sudden, one day you've got a job, and the next day by a, an executive order, you have your pink slip, and, yeah, you might have a couple months of severance pay, but uh, what what did that actually affect? It really didn't affect anything. Now, if you could have, uh, and my thought on that, on that executive order is if you, I don't agree with it, uh, but to me it would have made much more sense if they would have, if they would have spread that out and said, as as jobs, we're going to re reduce our dependence on on uh, natural gas and oils. Uh, I think it's going to be extremely difficult. But anyway, um, because of all the implications there, with most of us are sitting right now, and we can, within a quick reach, touch something that is a derivative mm -hmm. of of the oil and gas industry. Every piece of plastic, every piece of 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 device the the phone that you're holding to listen to this podcast um, all the material required to actually produce this podcast would not be possible mm -hmm. without oil and gas and so I don't I that's why I say it was a knee-jerk reaction because uh, the thought process is not there to understand how that's going to impact everything we do number one we look at it straight at the gas pump and we think oh well you know, now that's going to raise the price of fuel, but that's mm -hmm. just a portion of it. For every every gallon of fuel that goes up in price, the company that has to transport product across country so that people in West Coast and East Coast can enjoy the products that they want and serve and, and deserve to have if they can pay for them and need um, is going to go up because now our transportation costs are going up uh, there was no provision for the guys that were making uh, good money to say, you know, we're going to we're going to do this over a period of time. Would have probably made more sense to me that over the next ten years we want to reduce our uh, the impact and we're going to slowly diminish the need for oil and gas. And the th what really troubles me as much as anything about this shutdown of the XL pipeline, it does nothing to address the issue of transportation of crude oil. Crude oil is still going to be produced by these guys out of Canada. The XL pipeline was coming, you know. To drag from, it down to the Gulf to, Coast, wasn't it? Yeah, to drag it to the Gulf Coast mm -hmm. or to Illinois, where there's a big hmm. facility there for the um, hit what we call um, tar-type tar fuels or tar-type uh, gas, the tar sands, out of uh, northern Alberta. And those, those are components of we've got to have that for our road surfaces we we you know you're not going to build a road that everybody wants to travel on if it's gravel all the no, way from brother, new york that new york city to los angeles california asphalt 
asphalt. <laughs> How do you make asphalt? How do you make without asphalt oil? without oil? Mm. Oil, right? Honey. So, honey. That'll do it. Oh, honey. Yes, honey. And we're having a bees problem. So so I look at that and I think, well, that's not going to really stop anything because now they're going to be dependent upon some other means of transportation. So now you have trains, which Uh, have had their issues with safety. Some would say, because of the people who own the trains, that that was some um, back, back room uh, deal to shut down the pipeline because that then that would have taken it off the train, made it more efficient to yes. move potentially. Um, but yeah. then that would have taken it off the train. Yep. Now here's here. Well, we all we all know who we're talking yeah, about. Warren here. and Bill. <laughs> yeah, Warren and Bill. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, the uh, what do you say about? Because I've I've read a couple of other arguments. Oh, you know, we're the these jobs that were lost were. Short-term jobs anyway, because apparently once the pipeline is done, it's only going to need, I don't know, 35 or something people to maintain it. Um, so the 8,000 jobs or 11,000 jobs that were lost um, aren't, like, they would have been gone anyway in a couple of years when that was done. And if it had been completed, then that's going to remove all those trucking jobs and rail jobs that would have been sustained by having to move the oil on those things. So some people are saying it potentially it's a net maybe a net loss but it's it's close to a wash in the end it's that's probably true um i'm not going to argue that point i think that you know when what we've seen on pipelines and i've i actually participated in uh providing product to pipeline Hmm. construction we had several projects in one of the companies that i worked for over the years that supplied uh these huge ball valves you Hmm. know uh, to certain parts of the pipeline to control and, and keep them safe. So in that regard, they are correct. You know, these 11,000 jobs that were lost so quickly uh, would probably have dropped down to a few hundred, right? So you still have mm-hmm. to have station managers. You still have to have people in a, in a control And then there's a somewhere. maintenance scenario that keeps yeah, going. Yeah, yeah. It, mm-hmm. and, and then you have to have people that are managing it. It's a... Uh, so it's no different than when we see these wind towers going up. You have a big influx of people right. come in, right? And they and put up the, they lay they lay the groundwork, they put in the foundations, they stand the towers up, they mm-hmm. attach all the blades and everything and make sure things are working and you know there may be 500 to 1000 guys working on that project. And then when it comes to a conclusion, then you drop back to 25 or 30 guys that are there permanently to make sure that these things continue to run right. So we see that in any kind of project like that. Um, so I, I think that your point there is, yeah, there's there's going to be um, some guys that are going to keep their jobs, uh, probably not so much on the trucking end, uh, but there may be a need now for uh, crude hauling uh uh, tank cars, which means somebody's going to have to make those. Mm. Uh, there's going to have to be my nephew is mm-hmm. an engineer uh, for one of the railroads. And so he's going to be busier with with the work that he has. And those are good paying jobs as well. But I just, I, I'm disappointed in just the rapidity of what they did mm-hmm. in just a, a sweep of the pen. And it really didn't accomplish. So we'll we res- respond to. to this quote. This is from... 
the appointee uh, as uh, for National Climate Advisor, Gina McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a quote from her, and this, uh, this story came out yesterday. Um, quote, The most exciting thing about this is we're not asking for sacrifice here. This is in an interview with uh, the Today Show on NBC. She said the president fully understands, and this is after um, the executive order to, you know, that would have, that stopped it and mm-hmm. lost. And they say eleven thousand. The initially proposed more than a decade ago would have sustained about eleven thousand U.S. jobs in twenty one this current year, including eight thousand union jobs and generated one point six billion in gross wages. So that's what that job block was going to pay Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, and so going back to her quote she says the president fully understands that people are suffering now so this is all about recovering from the covid crisis this is all about building good clean jobs jobs where you can get access to jobs to good pay and unions she continued quote this is all about investing in the infrastructure we need to build that future that is going to get us to clean electricity and net zero in 2050. This is about promises he made that he's going to keep, end quote. Yeah, so it's it's a confusing statement, to say the least. Is this a shift? Like, is this a deliberate shift, um, uh, a forced uh, move, maybe, away from... Fossil fuels? Yeah, I think it or is. Or an attempted I, force yeah, move? Yeah, it's, it's an attempted move. I, I, I think it's going to be unsuccessful in the end. Um, and the reason I say that is, is there's multiple reasons why I say that. Uh, number one is if, if, you, if you're going to force people to live in places they don't want to live, mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's a lot of these guys that are working on these pipelines that don't want to move to California, to the West Coast or to the East Coast to re- be retrained into manufacture or the, the building of solar panels. And that was one of the things that they mentioned in this is that there's going to be great jobs in, in building solar panels and great jobs in building uh, wind energy projects and these kinds of things. Well, not everybody... You know, it's, it's kind of like uh, being a, a doctor one day and because somebody says, uh, well, we're going to stop that service and now you need to go be a car manufacturer, you know, work in an automobile factory. Well, that's not what these guys are trained for. Most of them are trained skilled workers in fabrication or they're skilled workers in engineering or mm-hmm. skilled professional services uh, in things like thermodynamics and in things like uh, uh, flow technology and in things like uh, design of of big pieces of equipment. So they're mechanical engineers and civil engineers that are involved in this. And these are, these are well-educated people. So to tell them that one day they're going to go this job and we can, we can give you another job over here tomorrow that you can just step right in. That and, you can step right mm-hmm, in. Yeah. Well, it's a difference of okay, now I was making sixty bucks an hour, seventy bucks an hour, and you're going to give me a job for twenty. I I can't I can't pay my car payment on mm-hmm. that, so I'm gonna something's going to have to go here, and so I I that's what troubles me about it. And the other thing that these guys aren't taking into account is 
you know, there's becoming more and more of a resistance to things like big solar arrays, mm. more of a resistance to wind towers. I mean, my wife is, I mean, we're not radicals in this thing or anything, but she says, you know, I just miss the days when there wasn't all these wind towers around. And people are kind of getting tired of that as it used to be a kind of a unique feature, right? Mm -hmm. I can remember the days driving up 29 when I was traveling. It's like, oh, look at all those cool wind towers over there. Well, now it's like, look at all those wind towers. You know, and I'm, I'm not trying to downgrade the people that are working on wind tower projects or anything like that, because I, I think it does help. But but really, let's let's be real about it. Just because the. Uh, just because uh, the government can say that you have to build something on your land, it becomes this eminent domain thing. Um, they they didn't prohibit the uh, demonstrations against pipelines but are they going to allow demonstrations to take place against the building of more wind towers Mm. by farmers who may be upset or by why is it that you can't interesting when we were when i was actively involved in a couple different projects in california one of the things that was so amazing to me is that in downtown Los Angeles, just off where the at the time the uh, Queen Mary was moored, uh, they had all these really odd-looking buildings. I couldn't figure out what those buildings were, and I asked somebody, I says, "What's all those buildings over there?" Oh, those are oil rigs drilling inside these buildings because the people in Los Angeles didn't want to see are you that kidding? ugly derrick. They had to build a building around it. Absolutely, absolutely. Wow. And then we were working up in. Uh, uh, north of LA, it's just for looks, just for looks, because the lo- they didn't like the look of it. They didn't like the look of the of the drilling rig, so they wow. had to build a building around it so these rigs <laughs> can drill <laughs> inside this building. I know it's just crazy. Well, then you get uh, get north of LA into those more higher end uh, mm-hmm. housing areas, you know, and it was so funny because they were all about stopping. Uh, oil platforms that they had to look at. Oh, out in the ocean? Yes, out in right. the ocean. So everybody's kind of familiar with that. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting now that probably the places that produce the greatest energy for wind generation, from wind generation, are the offshore locations. Mm-hmm. But you see these same people who are so much uh, advocating for uh, clean energy Oh, I don't want that wind tower out there in my ocean view. Mm-hmm. East Coast, mm-hmm. West Coast, Kennedy grounds, oh, yeah. those places off there. It's like, whoa, no way, not here. Oh, so where are we going to put them? We're going to put it out in a flyover country where nobody sees them. Mm. We're going to put them out there where those degenerates live. <laughs> right? Well, they never say that out loud. Oh. Oh. Or maybe they would. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. <laughs> So anyway, I'm I'm a little frustrated by all that, but I I'm I know as well that had there been you know a concerted effort over 20 years to really develop this kind of stuff, those people that were in those pipeline jobs, it's just an excuse to cut out oil and gas, uh, but it's it's gonna it's gonna bite the people who think they need it the you know the least, and. Had they made transitions of time where now it's becoming appealing 
to be part of that clean energy business, mm-hmm. a lot of those engineers and those guys with the with the you know good degrees and solid work ethic and skilled workers uh, would have gradually uh, moved towards that industry because the jobs would have paid well, mm-hmm. right? Think about it. I mean, how many people? just all of a sudden decide they're going to go work in the oil and gas industry up in Williston, North Dakota. It's because the jobs are high paying. You know, a lot of those guys I know up there were making $200,000 a year. Mm. That's pretty good money. And it's a very big incentive. Well, it takes time to do that though. Mm -hmm. So you just don't do that overnight. So I think they, they really shot themselves in the foot and you still have to have um, oil and gas. And, and I, I think (laughs) it's kind of funny because I think that if their goal is net zero carbon emissions by 2050, we could have gotten there without having to to scratch through the XL pipeline or mm-hmm. Dakota Access pipeline or anything else. You could have done that by just gradually infusing um, these other clean energy sources. And there's probably more than that. Why why are we so intent on uh, looking at something that has you know, ex- exposure to everybody that's out there. Have you ever gone past a big old solar array mm-hmm. panel? I mean, Minnesota's full of them. Yeah. It's kind of ugly, really, you know? And and do they work that well in the wintertime? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with the process on that. But. Well, h- how much of it do you think is, uh, I'd say virtue signaling, but is designed to it's a very visual uh appearance because i mean they they take up a lot of space they look a certain way and that look implies that they that that you care more about the environment than if you don't have them there now you you may do geothermal you're talking you're talking wind towers well that or or even solar solar but, you yeah. know if if you do geothermal in your house hmm? you know you drill a couple wells into the ground, yep. way down, and yep. you it, your actual cost to heat your home is Drops virtually none. nothing. I mean, yes. you got you have a pump that yep. runs the the liquid. That's it. Yeah, um, and maybe some air moving around, but that is probably a greener solution than anything else. But you can't see it. Yeah. But if you put a pile of of solar panels on the side of your house, you look like. Like it's 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 a, it's a beacon. It's yeah. a beacon to the world. Hey, look what I'm hey, doing. Look at I'm me. saving I'm, the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Is is some of this virtue signaling because they look? It looks like that. Oh, I think yeah, I think so. It's kind of like the your our friends in Congress there that decided that they're going to tear down every building in New York and rebuild it to be energy efficient. It's it's all about you know the appearance of of doing the right thing for climate um, management, if you will. I don't think mankind can actually do anything about climate management, but that's just me. Um, See, because I, I don't have a problem at all if somebody chooses to go down any of these alternative roads. Not for a second. I mean, if someone wanted to put a backyard nuke in, in the alley, you know what I'd do? I'd tie into it. I'd, I'd ask, ask for access. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- there's some technology out there that you could power a block of homes sure. on a little generator-sized backyard nuclear reactor. Yeah. That's pretty darn safe. 
Yeah, and and that's that's for my this other much co- cost. Yeah, like after it's installed, you got no cost. Yeah, hardly. Yeah, and everybody's complained year after year after year about the disposal costs and all that kind of thing, and yet, yeah, um, that's old I, technology. The new stuff. The is new amazing. technology. I talked to an engineer who is a nuclear engineer, which surprisingly, I met him in an airport, and we just sat there talking. He was a young guy. I thought, man, that occupation, that uh, skill level, that engineering. Uh, training is still out there and available. <laughs> I was actually really surprised. And he said, yeah, he says, but, you know, the new technology is, is so uh, so far advanced over the early forays into nuclear power. Mm-hmm. And, yes, things do happen. But, um, I mean, the, the production that you can get out of nuclear energy is just phenomenal. And... Uh, it, it's really gotten a bad reputation because of a few instances. Um, I think if you were really focused on net zero emissions, um, that has is, to be a part of the game. Nuclear has to be a part of the mm-hmm. game and, and new technology. In yes. That. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. <clears throat> so it's, it's just a really interesting, I think so much of this is just positioning. It's, uh, um, I, I think it, it just, it becomes so much politics that it just, Really, the oil and gas industry has just been subjected to politics for so many years. Well, it's, it's so hard when livelihoods of people mm-hmm. are a political pawn. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't be allowed. Yeah, I mean, I mean if we're going to make the livelihoods of people a pawn, I think we ought to fire everybody in Washington, D.C., and in every, I'm all every, for that. Let's every put in part term of federal federal government and start <laughs> from scratch, and then let's see if we can clean this whole mess up. You know, but that's not going to happen. I would love to see Congress be honest about term limits. Yes, and and I mean, what they say now is, well, we need to know how the system works, and so when you have tenure you know the system and you get more of a say because you understand how things work. So I need to be there for 30 years. I need to be there unlimited. I need to be able to, to have me being there because then I know how the, the system works. Yeah. Um, because if we turn over every, you know, every 10, 15 years, uh, we won't have, you know, we won't be able to know what happened. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, if you can't get anything done in 12 years in the Senate, <laughs> go home and get a job. And if you can't get anything done in 12 years in the House of Representatives, go home and you get need to go home. Absolutely. So we're not talking about, uh, you really probably get fresher ideas and more opportunity to do some really good things mm-hmm. if you had term limits and you don't have people sitting there making a career. And I, I, I think, too, along with that, this whole idea of we support them for the rest of their life is just silliness. Um, it's a It's a... It really is just a scourge on the American taxpayer, and they need to just go back uh, to if they if if they want to go back to serving tables in a New York restaurant, that's what they ought to mm-hmm. do. Yeah, you know, and you you should never be able to have a family dynasty in politics. Oh, absolutely in not ever. Absolutely not. And and you should never ever be able to buy your way into a, a an elected position. That should be a crime. Well, and and to to listen to these guys and talk about what it takes to be the committee chairman, yeah, of a very important committee 
uh, these guys are paying, I've heard, as high as a half million dollars. Some of them are sit, nearly a million to for the sit chair as seat. a chair seat. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. to be on this committee. Yep. And it's like, who's paying for that? Mm-hmm. Well, it's and all a special are, interest. And groups. are they getting anything for it? Um, th- there was a guy uh, from Utah, representative. He wrote a book in the last couple of years, and he outlined what those dues are and that they exist. And the way they get the money gets raised is after you're elected, then you have receptions, and you invite people for high a thousand five ten thousand dollars a plate reception, mm-hmm. and that money goes to cover your due fees, your dues, mm-hmm. and that due gets paid to the party that you're a part of. Yep, which is ludicrous. Yeah, but so what it is, you get like you get a a chair seat in the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. That's a million dollars. It's seat. a yeah yeah absolutely. Who pays a million dollars? You got that. So, and and what do they get for that? That's outrageous. You should not cost a dime. It's it's like to me, it's just a legal graft. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just it's just craziness, and I I just it's just it's almost shameful. Um, It's been part of our system, and that's why uh, I think the best thing that could happen, and it, it it will be. It would be extremely difficult. But it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I know uh, Senator Cruz just introduced again. I think he's done it almost every Congress, introduced mm-hmm. a bill uh, to implement term limits. Shot down immediately. Yep. And uh, I've asked our one of our senators about it. And, he, I mean, he has a good, uh, a well-articulated position that it's about, um, you know, the the takeaway from his position is, until the unelected bureaucrats of these organizations have term limits, then the Congress people shouldn't have them because those people never change, but Congress has to. Yeah. Well, in my mind, that actually makes some sense to, you know, to turn over Congress to bring in new ideas and new things. Mm-hmm. And then if you have these career people that are not, they're not political, supposedly, they're not beholden to uh, an ideology or they're not supposed to be. Then they can come in, and they know, you know, back 20 years ago, we ran some things this way, and we tried to get a rule change, and here's why it didn't work. And then a new, fresh eyeball could come in and say, you know what? Did we think about this part to make it work? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, that's new technology. We didn't think about that. So then maybe you can get some change. But yeah. not with these old guys, not with the McConnells, the Schumers, the Pelosi's, uh, the Steny Hoyers. I mean, Patrick Leahy. I mean, these people need to quit they need to go they need away to be gone. all of them they need to be gone yeah and and the thing that other, that also troubles me is in in the private sector um you know all the years i worked in the private sector um there was no such thing as tenure if if you if you did your job poorly mm-hmm. it's like come in here let's have a talk and if if after three reviews we <laughs> still review the same thing nothing's yeah. changed i'm sorry bob but mm-hmm. uh Hit the road, Jack. You know, you're out of here. Mm -hmm. And the thing that troubles me is these um, people who go to work every day, go to a place to show up, to Mm -hmm. collect a paycheck, Mm -hmm. um, live entirely by their tenure within the government. And they there's, it would take a phenomenal amount of effort to oust them out of a yeah. position. Yep. And I think in leadership roles and managers, 
um, that also needs to be addressed. If, if you're in there and you've been in that job, it's mandatory. You're out of there after 10 years. Let somebody sure. else have an opportunity yeah. to come in and learn mm-hmm. how government operates. And there's nothing wrong with that. Well, but and built in, out, yeah, built in the job description should be uh, bringing up your, your uh, successor. Yes. But how often do they do that? No, no. 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 The more that, the longer you're in there, the more power you have, mm-hmm. and the more that you can exercise mm-hmm. uh, your thought process on somebody yeah. else. So, but yeah. the idea I heard Nancy Pelosi once a couple years back. She claimed, uh, in response to uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez push to for these old Democrats to step aside, and she said, "We need new blood." AOC. Mm-hmm. That's what she mm-hmm. is on Instagram. So I'll say that. AOC, that's her, her thing was, we have too many old career Democrats in our party, she says. And Nancy Pelosi's response was, too bad. This is, our system is run on tenure and Mm -hmm. and in seniority. Because the more seniority you have, the more say you have. To me, that goes against every principle. It does. Of America. It does. Are we... The thing that is troubling is that our system of government was founded on the thought it is a government of citizens run by the citizens who manage that for a period of time, and then they step away and allow other citizens to mm-hmm. come in and participate in government. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we've made it a whole system, an occupation, and I just I think that's really sad. And, and the problem is as much as you would like to have that change i know that if there are people that are really good at doing their job they're constitutionalists they they have the they have the heart of the american people in general they're they have uh, conservative principles you know they could be could be classified liberal or or uh conservative you know but they they really do believe you know, in our constitution and that we, we can have even opposing viewpoints, but we don't beat each other up over it. We just, you know, let's sit down and talk. I can remember, you know, years ago when we would actually have what we called public dialogue, mm. right? And this was a course I studied in at the university. It's like talking about, you know, yes, we have an opposing point of view, but Hopefully, we can present our case so well that we convince others uh, to join us in our thought process. Mm-hmm. Well, that's totally gone now. It is, it is, uh, it's a shame that we can't get back to a government that is for the people, by the people, and run by the people. Mm. So, yeah, for peace from uh, Yankton, South Dakota. Oh, man. Have you, in your <laughs> many moons on this earth... <laughs> um, have you seen the kind of division that we are seeing in our civil discourse or uncivil discourse, however you want to do it, um, in the past? Or is it, 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 was it always there? It's just now amplified because of the social medias and how easy and information flows now. Yeah, I think there's so many contributing factors. I've never seen it so divisive. And so critical and such shameful acts of accusations and manipulations in just about every area of politics that we see today. It's just really shameful. I can remember, you know, when there was 
actual open discussion about the differences of perspective. Um, you know, I, I, my, my dad was not a big fan of John F. Kennedy. And while he had some personal issues, I really felt like, uh, he was one of my heroes, you know, um, he, uh, he espoused, you know, uh, the, the, that people should, should think beyond themselves mm -hmm. and, and really do the best that they can in, uh, in their public service and their private, uh, work and that sort of thing. And it's, it's kind of a shame now we, we can't even, we can't even get that far in our discussion with someone else. And I, I would mm -hmm. love to sit down and visit with somebody that has uh, an opposing point of view, because I think that there's things that maybe I may be blind to mm -hmm. that I could listen to and learn from. But it's, it's, it's a shame that you can't do that anymore without a bunch of, of foul language and, and berating and, and minimizing the other person that you're talking to, I just don't think that's healthy. I think healthy discourse is is good for our country, but not the not the kind of cancel culture that we have. The kind of just uh, mean spiritedness and and you know it goes on both sides of the party. It's not it's not just just one or the other. It's it's a shame that we can't sit down and talk through things. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, th I, I, I have been really careful to uh, avoid those just uh, um, those kind of thoughts and processes that just hammer on people for no reason other than they have a different perspective. Um, so it's it would be it would actually be fun to sit down and talk with somebody just to you know have a a good healthy discourse. And then agree to disagree. Well, yeah. J JFK was the one who, in our American history, some say he stole it from England, but that's fine. Um, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Mm -hmm. um, is it telling to you that in this last election cycle, um, Ed Markey from Massachusetts running against a Kennedy he said, with all due respect, this is a direct quote from Markey during the campaign in September, okay. with all due respect, it's time to start asking what your country can do for you. Oh, wow. So what, 50 what years later, <laughs> we have the exact opposite position taken by the same political party. Yeah, yeah. Well, but it's not the same political party. Um, well, they you know, call themselves the same. It well, may it, not the be the same. The name is the same, but... You know the the color of the rose is socialism, mm. so I think that it's a shame that uh, one of, one of the great parties of our times has has been taken to this level. Um, I can tell you that I ran on a on a Democratic Party ticket uh, for an office at one time in my life. I didn't win, but you know that's okay. I mean, it was an opportunity for me to see how things work there. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's just, it's been, it has been infused with so much, um, rhetoric and, uh, division and just, um, driving, driving the, the whole, uh, party to thinking that 
we can stay in power if we give people everything that they want. That's not good for us. We we can't we can't expect our government to do that for us. It's kind of like you know everybody saying everybody has to, you know, uh, wear a motorcycle helmet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because you don't know what's good for you. You you don't have the mental capacity to be able to make that decision. So we're going to have to make that decision for you. Well, do you see that in our current the current pandemic response? Around oh, the country, too. Oh, that, oh absolutely. That idea that mask mandate and everything else. It's well, like, I know what's good for you. Now, yeah. is, is it one mask, two masks, three masks? You know, that's the big question now. And now we got to d- make a decision. Okay, so we're going to mandate masks. Is it one mask or two masks that you wear or three masks that you wear? Right? Well, <laughs> l- let me tell you something that makes me just furious about that whole thing. Um, I, I believe that Anthony Fauci should be removed from any kind of... of office, spokes, position, job, whatever, any of it. And it's because he's blatantly lied and admitted to it. Yeah. And uh, for him to come out now as with Biden as the president and say, oh, it's so good to be able to speak freely, then why did you continue to speak? You should have quit. If, if, you were, if he was so willing under the last president, Trump, if he was so willing to say what he was supposed to say, the party line, and do it with, with confidence, with, uh, with authority. And now mm-hmm. he comes out and says, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to do that anymore. Then you are a, a blow-in-the-wind hat. Yep. You have no business being a voice of authority. At 400000 plus a year. Yeah. How, plus, he owns all kinds of patents on vaccine technology, but that's a different story. Yeah. Um, how in the world is he allowed to continue to be that voice of reason when he has so blatantly been... Um, on both sides of the issue and, yeah. and author- authoritatively, not like, you know, ah, I guess I'll have to say it. No, confidently coming out, you need to do this, you shouldn't do this. Yeah. And, and then to come right out and say, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to say that anymore. And as a scientist, he should have been very clear on if a true scientist would have examined all the, all the evidence mm-hmm. and said, this is exactly what's going to help us. Wearing a mask is or is not going to help us. And in all reality, folks... A mask does absolutely nothing for you. Now, there is some some reason to isolate for a certain period of time. If you've got it, don't go out and just indiscriminately spread right. it throughout the country. But but I think had had it, there been an effort, and I think President Trump would have listened to somebody who had presented logical evidence to this is this is what's going on, um, and this is what needs to be done. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's frustrating now to see these people blowing in the wind, mm-hmm. you know, today the wind's mm-hmm. out of the east. So we're going to say this tomorrow, the wind's out of the west. So we're going to say this. See, it's interesting because uh, there's a guy named Kerry Mullis. He, he invented the PCR test. Um, I heard a, a recording of him, uh, from a couple of years ago, I think. And he was actually talking about Anthony Fauci and he said, that Fauci is the biggest hack out there. He said he <laughs> wow. he knows nothing about what he talks about, and he will willingly lie for his job. Well, and and th- this is a quote from Kerry Mullis. So I mean, I I don't know the guy, so I don't know. But but when you hear someone like that say these hmm. things about this guy, not not during this pandemic, from years past, hmm. say he he knows nothing about what he talks about. 
and he will willingly say whatever he needs to for his bosses. Yeah. It's a shame. It's an absolute shame. Yeah. It's a shame. It's a shame. But but if we have the White House now has put out um, this new information that an N95 mask is actually the one you need. But that's the one they told us not to buy because those needed to go to the hospital workers. So we couldn't buy those. It's fine. Put a bandana around your mouth. You're fine. You know, toilet, what something, whatever you need to do, you can put, you know, like the bandit look, which my thought is, okay, I'll look like I'm robbing the place if that's where we're going. Sure. <laughs> I told my wife the other day, I'm going to go buy a balaclava. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and here's the ludicrous thing. There's a company called Jacob & Co. They're uber high-end watchmaker and jewelry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we're talking million-dollar watches plus. Yeah. Um, they made a face mask. That was like a hundred carats of diamonds. Oh, yeah. So you're gonna throw that in a washing machine? Well, first <laughs> off, there's holes between them. So it again, is it virtue signaling? Is this just yeah. as long as you have something on your face? The the White House and the the Fauci's right now say um, N95 is what you need, and it has to be worn properly. Well, let's wear it properly then. They're yeah. saying multiple masks, which whatever. What that means is you can't touch it. Mm-hmm. It has to be a, a proper N95 mask has to be fitted to fitted your to face. There's, the mul- face. There's multiple yep. sizes fitted, and they only last so many Uses. minutes. Yeah, and then you have to throw them out. Yep. But I watched the spokesperson for the president, President Biden. I watched Jen Psaki is her name. Uh, a couple days ago, I watched her press conference, and she gets up there. She has her N95, the 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 generic ones. The mm-hmm. white ones mm-hmm. um, that you would wear if you're going to do sanding in your workshop right, or whatever. Right. Um, she has that. As she gets up to the podium, she takes it off and she folds it and kind of creases it flat. So she's just fondling the whole mask. And then she sets it aside and does her briefing. And then she picks it back up. Same one. She just fondled and puts it back on her face. Anything that was on that mask is now on her face and it's on everything she touches. Yep. Yep. And the mask is now useless. So exactly. that's what makes me mad. If these things work, you have to use them properly. You use the right protocol. You, exactly. Clean your yeah. hands first and don't touch them when they're on your face. Right. How often do you, all the time. I mean, oh. I watch these senators when they're on the floor, they're constantly touching well, their face. Our president has done exactly it's the horrible. same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Pull it down, put it back now, on. Now, what cracks me up on the campaign trail, which I, it, I, I thought it was a joke. Biden is in Vegas, I think. This is when he was running for office. And he's there. He's got his mask on talking. He pulls it down, coughs into his fist, and puts the mask back up <laughs> on camera. <laughs> so it's... It, uh, so he didn't even do the... No, uh, no. Arm pocket. No, he pulled it down off his face to <laughs> cough into his hand and then put it back. <laughs> and, I mean, but what it does is it shows that, that these people aren't taking this seriously. Right. More than it's just a show. Well, the, the troubling thing, too, is you... You uh, mandate a mask on federal property, and then so does that mean that when President Biden is in the White House, it's federal property that he's walking around the White House with a face mask on every day? I really doubt it. Well, it appears so because every time he's sitting at the Oval Office desk, oh, he's but, got a mask. But he's on, on camera. Well, that's true. Well, that's yeah. all that matters. Yeah. So, so it is. I mean, it's virtue signaling, and then you have have him and his family going to the Lincoln Memorial or and walking around without their masks on. Well, it's just well, when Jen Psaki was asked about that, 
it was a special moment they were celebrating. Oh, okay. So that's acceptable. Oh, so if, so I, if I have a I'm, special I'm, moment. Absolutely. I'm going to go to the Lincoln Memorial. I'm going to say the to the guards and yeah. to the National Guard. We're celebrating. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. we're celebrating. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is an important event for us. Absolutely. We want to take a picture. Absolutely, yeah. So I don't think that'll work. I don't either, but because <laughs> they have guns. <laughs> no, so to, to me, it's it's all, and again, if if the medical world, and I talked to a doctor the other day, and I said, I'm so frustrated with the medical community. And I, I hate lumping them all in because I think there's a ton of them that are phenomenal. Absolutely. But the, the ones that are out front, mm-hmm. I, I have zero respect for because they have blatantly told things that are not true. Mm-hmm. I mean, even as close as, as, as Ortonville, as in, you know, close by Sioux Falls, they have made statements that are untrue. And I am not a doctor. I'm not a, a, a scientist. But I can go and I can watch video. And this is it. This is the dumb part. Is I can watch the video of the expert saying the exact opposite thing to what this other doctor said mm-hmm. as fact. They're both claiming fact. Mm-hmm. What in the world do you believe? Yeah, where's the truth? Yeah. Where's and so truth? what it makes me do is it makes me be skeptical of everything. Yeah. And that's a dangerous position because if it I is? can't believe you or you or you, how can I, I mean, how do I know what to believe? Yeah. How do, how do I follow any kind of instruction if there's, if there's no uh, truth or honesty in that I, mm-hmm. I remember my brother, uh, who is a registered nurse and had just retired, and this whole thing happened in March of last year, and they start talking about masks, and he says, the 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 most effective mask is the hospital workers N95 mask, and you can only wear it a little while, then you have to discard it, and he said, the masks that that they're now saying that are are okay to use. He said, "Do absolutely nothing." Oh my goodness! So I walked so in this Target was, this the other was, day. Yeah, tell me. Oh, which I I love freedom. I love private business being allowed to make their own decisions. And mm-hmm. if a private company wants to mandate a mask, wonderful. That's their job. They they can do that all day long. Mm-hmm. Now I also think they should be able to mandate anything in their store. And that means if a restaurant wants to allow smoking, they should allow it. Sure. No one should be able to stop them. Sure. I think if a restaurant wants to ban smoking, awesome, let them. Mm-hmm. I think if uh, if someone wants to say you don't have to wear shoes in our store, great. Or you have to wear shoes, great. Got to keep your pants on in our store, perfect. <laughs> or, you know, if you want to, whatever. So, you so should be what able you're to saying do that. is then each business has to have a list of things you can and cannot do in their store. I think they should have the freedom <laughs> to do that. Absolutely. Okay. Um, but Target, Target has a policy that you can't go in the store without a mask on. Sure. Fine. I unfortunately need to go in there, so I'll, I'll, I will comply. So I put, I, I put my mask on. Good for you. And I walked in there. Actually, I walked in without it and then put it on just because um, <laughs> no one was there. It was me and my wife. It's not like there was a crowd we were with. <laughs> well, they have their little kiosk by the door now where you mm-hmm. they'll give you one if you don't nice. have one. Um, Some stores the, are charging you Yeah, for but it. the paper <laughs> surgical mask, yeah. whatever. Um, this lady, and I, I took a picture of it because I thought it was insane. And I wanted to go up and say, excuse me, ma'am, what you're doing is um, uh, negating any kind of benefit you're going to get. Uh, they come in a box. 
Well, I'll show you the picture, and I, I, I apologize for the listeners because this is, I mean, it's a visual thing, but I'll, I'll explain what I'm seeing here. Um, so if you look at this picture, Bob, <clears throat> so what she's doing is she is unpacking every mask <laughs> and hanging it on the front of the counter. Oh, oh yeah. So I so can she is by. now, and she is now touching all of them. Oh, yeah. As she takes them out and she hangs them out there. So they are no longer, if they were sterile, they're not anymore. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And somebody How walking by, stupid. you know, picks up their mask to breathe out of their nose. Totally. And all of a sudden, all those. They're all over. Particles mm-hmm. are all over that mm-hmm. mask. Yeah. That's just, that's, that's pretty crazy. It was, it was like a, a, a drive through restaurant I went to. I have to tell this story because it's just so hilarious. Oh, so, so we are, we're, my, we've been out hunting, my brother and I, and we stop at, and, and it was open. It was open on the inside. I thought, wow, this is wonderful. Fast food restaurant. We can go inside, order, do whatever. So they've got the plexiglass screens up there and everything. And, uh, and, um, so he, uh, <laughs> he's, he's got these, uh, gloves on you know the surgical gloves on and and is he's he's handling the money doesn't change gloves he handles the money puts it in the till and then he goes over to get your food or whatever and he brings the food to the same gloves same gloves you know he's never changed his stuff and and the least you could do is have one person work in the cash register and another person delivering the food but no not in this case you know short of help so you know we got to do this look safe it's all about virtue signaling so he goes over he grabs the food he comes over uh takes my money puts it in the till and then he proceeds to give us um, the uh, cup for the drink so we could go self-serve our drink, mm-hmm. you know. And he grabs... Did he hang, grab the inside of it? He grabs the inside no. of the cup to lift it uh. out or to set it... He They're upside down, mm-hmm. right? So he takes mm-hmm. them off and, and then he pulls them apart individually, sticking his hand way down inside the cup and hand, sets the cup there on the front and it was like... I don't believe this. I do not believe this. You mean you you went through all, Oh, they they had to take my credit card. I think I used credit card. They took my 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 debit card and made me put it by myself into a tray. So then he took the tray, took the debit so He touched the tray and then touched your card. <laughs> he touched the tray, then touched my card, run it through the machine, and then he put it back in the tray and slid it back to me so I could take my card. <laughs> back out i thought man you know the the uh, amount of effort that they went to was totally negated by this one individual and and if there had been a person in there with some horrible disease oh yeah not it would have been spread through that restaurant in in no time at all and i thought this is this is how silly this whole system is well and that's the part that's so frustrating is if there's some sort of truth in all this, it's lost. Like, it, it's gone. Exactly. Because you have stupid decisions being made by, by corporate heads mm-hmm. that are saying, you must Starbucks. I was in uh, Fargo back in, must have been early December and November. And we drove, driving through Starbucks. Okay. So, we order, walk up there, and you, know, you can watch them work. So, I'm watching through the window, and they've got all their gloves on, all the stuff. They're all masked up and ready. Yep. 
Yep. Fine. You know, I, I'm okay. You're making my food. I don't want you drooling in it. I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, that should be a regular thing on it. Yeah. Totally. Restaurants, yeah. Absolutely. I'm okay with that. But they, you know, they put the lid on the drink. Fine. And then the guy <laughs> handing them out, taking your money, he grabs the lid, the top thing, picks it up, sets it inside this bucket. Yep. Grabs the, so he's touching the lid. Yeah. Sets it in the bucket. Leans the bucket out to me mm-hmm. to take it out of the... I, he can't hand it to me. Nope. He's got to send the bucket out <laughs> with the drink in it. And then I have to grab the lid where he just touched oh, you and just get it out. Just, oh, yeah. Nice. That's pretty healthy It's the same way with your credit virus. card. Is you put the credit card in and then, oh, now I get to touch it. That's outrageous. It's not like a secret vortex that gets oh, it's cleaned once it gets in here. It's just stupid. Oh. And it makes me... Just laugh and almost cry, yeah. At at the people that are so adamant that oh man, yeah, I'm doing everything right. I'm doing it all right. I'm doing it all right. Yeah. What kind of repercussion are we going to see in ten years? Yeah, from this. Yeah, are we just going to have the dumbest population? Uh, I don't know what to do because everything has been told to me how to walk, how to wash my hands, how to put the right glove on. I mean, are are we just creating drones? Yeah. Unfortunately, because that same person that that handed me or took my card, gave my card back to me in this tray, the same person that handed me these cups, had he been trained properly, would have known, you know what, you're, I'm better off just setting the cups here with some device right. that allows me to pull out my cup. Or just handed you, like, pick it up and hold the bottom hold the and bottom. hand them out to yep. you, and you yep. can touch them. Right. Absolutely. There would have been less less uh, chance of it. Mm-hmm. So it's just, you know, it, it's it's a, a knee-jerk reaction to all this stuff by corporate leads and corporate trainers that don't have a clue about what they're talking about. You know, and in normal conditions, um, you know, it, it's it's probably how we've developed herd immunities over a lot of other things. But it's just unfortunate that um, that this stuff came out so quickly and people just thinking it, it was all just a show. It's just all a show. Well, so, uh, isn't the old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions? Good intentions, yeah, absolutely. And so I, I don't fault these companies for trying something. Yeah. The problem is what they're trying and how it's being implemented is just, it's a farce. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, and yeah. it, again, it, it makes it makes you laugh, and it, it's like, why are we do? What are we doing? Yeah, I mean, I walk through Target. What are we doing? You know, Menards—they are militant. You go in that store. Mm-hmm. Uh, Menards is a uh, Lowe's type, uh, Northwest or kind of a Midwest um, Menards type. Yep, um, building supply store. They are militant. You don't have a mask on, they will find you. You have to wear one. Uh, it is amazing how many times I've walked through their departments and their people, the workers, have them down around their chin, they're down mm-hmm. below their nose, they're fondling them, they're hanging off. They're, it's, it's insane. Yeah. I just feel like we're doomed. Like we are creating, we're creating an environment and a populace that cannot think for themselves. And that scares me. It is. It is. It's frightening. Um, and, and what it does is it just, it, it quickly brings you to a place where people are easily manipulated, mm-hmm. easily controlled, and don't, don't give it a thought. They mm-hmm. just, they, it's not that they're dull. It's not that they're, but they're just ignorant. Mm-hmm. 
It's not that well, they're, they're not a, they're level. not allowed to think exactly in a lot of times. Yeah. Nope, you can't do that because there's our party line. And the, I mean, the that's sad, what we're seeing in the social media world is, too. It's not just you know the the it's permeated every level of our society. And the sad part is that it's really permeated um, our education system. Mm. It's permeated. Um, you see people trying to stand up in the medical community to to do what's right, and I believe that they're trying to do what's right. The, the doctors that basically got uh, blacklisted for standing up and saying this kind of thing works mm-hmm. or that kind of work, thing works, this doesn't work or that doesn't work, and and basically blacklisted. Uh, it's the private citizens who try to to stand up to stuff that are you know are put in a box and uh, not able to express. Uh, a, a, an original thought. Yeah. So. See, what, what I want is I want a medical community that is able to utilize anything available to them. Mm-hmm. Anything. And if, and if that means that in some instances certain things work and certain things don't, wonderful. Let the doctors let make them the de- choose. Yeah, Absolutely. Let the doctors mm-hmm. make the decision in co- cooperation with the with their patient. Yeah, a, a politician yeah. or a, a politically appointed person should never, ever, ever be able to to say that treatment, that medication is illegal for you to use. Yeah. It's yeah. un... You may not use Sp- that. Especially those who That's have not outrageous. been trained. Right. You know. Well, but even if they are, why would that person be able to do that? Because the doctor, unless they're not trained anymore to, to think... Should be able to go. You know what? Here's what's going on, man. What can we do? Mm-hmm. Let's try. Yeah, and it's start sad. trying things. Well, it's it's sad that you know that when you see doctors coming in opposition to that, a lot of times they're on um, advertisements. You know, they're getting paid big bucks to step up and and say things that are a result of how much money am I going to get paid to say this? You know, it's politically correct, so I can get by with it. And how much I get it. Get paid to well, say this yeah. or that, and, and that's sad. It is, and I've talked to a few um, doctors, and they they're adamant that they've never received any kind of kickback. Um, but what I wonder, but have they been on advertisements? Well, no, no, for not, a not product. Actually, no, yeah. But what I wonder then is how many of these uh, these good doctors, and and I, I think that for the most part they are. Mm-hmm. Um, how many of them? just by the sheer nature of their job aren't allowed to think outside of the box because their job won't allow it. And is that the same thing as someone else saying, you know, we're going to pay you to say this thing when on the, conversely they say, well, we just, you won't, you won't have a job if you say that. Yeah. That's an interesting it's question. Kind of the same concept, I think. Yeah, and so I, I don't know. And I, I can't imagine that anyone, any doctor with their salt would, would be accept, uh, would, would appreciate either of those scenarios. Right. Yeah. Because I, I, I just can't believe that for the, that the majority of doctors um, could be bought off. I don't think so either. But, but I do think, and a lot of it has something to do with the sheer cost of medical education. Um, there are a lot of doctors that they have no choice but to work because they got to pay off their half million dollars in student debt, potentially. Sure. So they're going to do what, what their boss says. And if their boss is a corporate hospital, then they have to follow the party line. Hmm. I, I, I mean, that makes some sense to me. But it's unfortunate. Like, they should be have full autonomy. A, a trained medical person should have full autonomy to be able to make decisions 
in in concert with their patient. Yeah. That's going to be best for that patient. Well, and I think there's a learning process there too. So just in fairness to to some of the newer ones coming into that industry or that that workplace, that professional uh, life, you know, there's still lots of things to learn. And and so I think working with others who have had significant experience, um, you know, you can learn a lot of stuff there. So um, hopefully it's... It's a desire to learn and not a corporate policy kind yeah. of thing. You got to follow this. Well, yeah. So, well, it's been good chatting with you, man. I probably <laughs> need to run. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we do need to I'm wrap up. I'm taking up all your uh, time today. Bob Pudwell. Thank you. It's been fun. This is, I'm going to call this part one because part I one? know we'll do it. We'll, we'll do it. We got to do, yeah. We got to <laughs> explore many other things <laughs> as well. Uh, so. Thanks for stopping in today. I mean, it, it was kind of a treat. We we talk on the phone regularly, but yes, we do. Uh, it's nice to actually sit down and yeah. uh, hear a little bit of your insights into the the world that you've created and grown up in. Yeah, so it's it's been fun. Uh, I thank you for letting me chat here with sure, you a yeah. bit and and share some thoughts. Uh, I hope your listeners enjoyed it. You bring and, a lot of good uh, insight to the table. I like yeah. it. And heck, even if you don't, I like you. So that's what matters. That's right. It's your show. It's my football. I can play with it or go home. That's right. (laughs) This is the Interview Podcast on the Wine Movement Podcast Network. Thanks so much, uh, Bob, for coming in again. Yes. Uh, thank you for listening. Ymillbank.com is the website. Ymillbank at gmail.com is the email address if you have any comments or questions. Uh, if you want to support the show, you certainly can do that. Ymillbank.com. Click on the podcast button, and there's a donate button on the page. Uh, if you got any value or any in- in- entertainment out of this show, um, if that was worth anything to you, turn that into some, some resource and help us continue the show. Thanks a lot. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Bob, have a great day and be safe. Thanks. Stay healthy. All right.